to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we celebrate the spontaneous story slammers from last season with part two of our annual story competition, Slammer of the Year, double feature. We broke our favorite storytellers from the season into two groups, and in this episode, we showcase the winning team from Patty's Paramount Pictures, first with their stories on the theme B-Movie, followed by their feature story. Recorded live at the Outdoor Amphitheater at Jump in downtown Boise, they are Mary Francis, Carly Oppie, Noah Stiple, and Lucas Littlefield. It's story time. We're starting with a big one here, Mary Francis at the mic. First of all, thank you so much for being here tonight. My story is shoulder pad sinkers. I can't lower the microphone, but basically, I'm squatting over a toilet. Yeah, you don't touch. I'm at the Hyatt, downtown Salt Lake City. After IP, I'm gonna be presenting to a hardcore group of professionals. They're twice my age, and I'm definitely the underdog. I finish peeing, flush the toilet behind me, and I hear this awful and it's tugging. What? Oh my gosh, I forgot. This is that I wore my one-piece shoulder pad outfit. This is the late 80s. I look around, oh no, this can't be happening to me. My suit is being swallowed and flushed in the toilet. No! Well, first of all, this isn't a thumb and a first digit retrieval. This is a holy crap. I gotta get my outfit out of the toilet. Pull it out of the toilet, it's dripping. Of course, I have to get out of here. I'm, I'm gonna be late for my presentation. I'm screaming it out in the sink, looking in my story, I always say in all my stories, this only happens to Mary, only in the life of Mary. I'm standing here in my bra with this wet, dripping, urine water suit. When I have no choice, I've gotta get this thing back on. So I finish wringing it out, towel after towel. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Okay, let's try the first arm. It's a reverse Band-Aid, right? You can't rip it off, you gotta put it on. Oh, God, oh, God. Okay, Mary, faster, left arm. Oh, it's so cold on my back. It's so cold on my back, this is disgusting! I get down to the elevator because I have to get to the 10th floor to warn my manager that I'm late for my presentation in my urine-soaked outfit. And by the way, I really wanna mention this. The reason I wore this one-piece suit is because of the shoulder pads. They made me feel broad in physique. Maybe they'd give me some leadership skills with this tough group. I'd have confidence. And now, as I rush to the elevator, they're nothing but oversaturated sponges dripping with urine, toilet water. I look down my chest. It's trickling and glistening on my breasts. Yes, I get into the elevator. Of course, it's air conditioned and freezing. And of course, there's other people in the elevator and they're looking at me and I forget. <laughs> there's shreds of the paper towel that have disintegrated all over me and I am picking them off. 
freezing, and I want to look at this other woman who just keeps staring at me. Why didn't you register for the underwater paper mache class at the pool? It's free. It's great. Get off the elevator, get to the 10th floor. Lightly tap, my boss comes. Barb, she tugs at the door, get in here now. I tug back, I can't. Now it's a tug of war. Get in here now. I said, no, I can't. Boom, 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 boom. Why? I said, because I will tell you if you promise not to tell anybody in the room. Oh yeah, I said, no, you promise. And I can see your eyes in her face, I promise. I said, I drop my suit in the toilet. She said, what? I said, I dropped my suit in the toilet. I've got to go change. I'll be right back. Everything is there. The handouts, the overhead, everything's ready to go. Just do it. Get to my hotel room. Screw the elevator. Now I'm running. My New York Jones shoes that I cherished squish. And as I run, they squish, 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 squish faster. Even the belt that I thought would be a dam for the reservoir of urine water didn't help. Literally jump in the shower, wash off, get dry clothes, get dry shoes, get back down to the room. I glide or embarrassingly like slither in the room and I see this whole conference table of my of older peers, colleagues. She transi transitions me to the front, Mary, come on up, get up here, let's go, let's go, let's go. And she says, by the way, we're reviewing side effects of the drugs. I'm like, okay, fine. So I say, okay, all right, so let's just jump right in here. Let's go ahead. Does anybody have the first side effect for Dynacirc? Herb says, yes, it's edema. Anybody else? Flushing! This story is called Mediocre Mary. Join me, you may want to close your eyes. Look up, the mountain is eerily, loomingly gray. The fog and the clouds have set in so bad that the visibility is almost impossible and it's freezingly cold. Even worse, Ice has menaced the downhill ski race course. And you have to wonder, are these elementary school children that are racing competing against one another? Are they truly competing against these treacherous conditions? One of these racers is my daughter, Madeline. She's nine years old. I tell her, you can't see anything, so please just look right in front of you. Just get down the mountain. And by the way, she has this bright yellow ski suit on. That's her traditional suit with this large helmet that almost makes her look like a weeble wobble, like she's going to fall down at any time. Uh, oh, no, not this daughter. Her nickname is The Missile. I had to put her in ski school because she'd fly down the mountain and wouldn't turn at two and a half years old. Race day. All the parents are shaking heads one by one as we watch, again, these elementary school children from the ice slide out or fall down. And you may or may not know this, 
But if a racer misses a gate, they're disqualified. End of race, that's it. All of us as parents, and mostly are out of state, just want our kids safe. Let's fast forward to my daughter. I see that little yellow bright child. She comes down the first gate. Because it's ice. She makes it through. Through the second gate. Her body is shaking from the tremulous ice. She starts to go for the third gate. She's down. She's down. She's down. She's slidden down the middle of the racetrack. She's holding her ankle. Is she hurt? I'm screaming in my head. I cannot help her. And she's lost a ski, and it slid down beyond her. She scoots on her bottom to get that ski. I don't know if that ankle is even broken. She tries to get that ski on, fails. Now these strangers of parents start to form a huddle around. She tries again to get that ski on, fails, scoots down. I'm screaming in my head now, can't anybody help my child? She's just a kid, come on. Now the wind and the snow come in. Third try, my daughter gets that ski on. All right, baby, now I'm out loud. Get down here, come home to mama. Just get down here safe, let's go home. This day is done. What does she do? She gets up on those skis because she knows she didn't miss that gate. She's not disqualified. By gum, my daughter, that nine-year-old, tiny, petite child, is going to finish this race. Parents are now gathering around me. That's your daughter. Yeah, I know. To our dismay, what does she do? She sidesteps step by step by step even slightly sliding to get up to that gate. She's gonna make it. She's gonna do it. She's gonna finish this race. Can she finish the rest of the gates? The other parents are now huddling. Now we're cheering like some sort of new mission, like go, that's your daughter. That, I, I know, I know. And I am now seeing her get closer and get closer and I can see the tears coming down those pink frozen cheeks. There she is right there. She's gonna finish this race. She gets to the finish line and kids run up to her in their ski boots and hug her. And these parents are saying, you know, by time she finished last, she's the winner. She got it done. And I said, you know what? Here's what my daughter taught me. No matter what a triumphant experience I can have, the true A experience is my daughter, petite brunette, Oscar-winning performance of dedication and honor. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Carly Oppie. Hi, I'm Carly Oppie. And I'm a performer. I've been a performer since I was very little. And sometimes I get paid. Not always. Not often. But sometimes. Um, I think anyone who's a performer can relate to starting out and how much they learned then. And uh, my story starts in 1999. I was 19. I was, it was the first paid 
gig I had. I worked at Fort Peck Summer Theater in Northeastern Montana. And if you don't know where that is, that's very normal. Um, but if you do, well, it's, it's a tiny town of like less than 200 people year round uh, that gathers underneath the largest earth-filled dam in the lower 48 states. And it uh, was a WPA project. So back then, they uh, built a giant movie theater for all the dam workers, the dam, D-A-M workers. And uh, there's also a bar there called the Gateway Bar, the best damn bar by a damn site. But anyways. Um, I grew up there and, well, in 1970, don't derail Carly, in 1970, a group of friends got together and decided, why don't we like make this a summer theater, this old abandoned uh, 1,000 seat theater? So they did. Well, anyways, uh, Northeastern Montana, I'm from North Central Montana Connections. I got hired, I made $1,000 for the entire summer. A thousand, talk about, yeah, talk about low budget, low, low budget problems. Thankfully, my, my parents still supported me quite a bit back then. I mean, I was 19. But uh, fast forward uh, to 2005, I'd actually spent the previous two summers at a different theater in Montana, but a good friend of mine, who's still a good friend of mine, was the artistic director, and he invited me back to Fort Peck for his season that he was directing. And he in 2005, so I was 25, he gave me so many amazing roles that honestly, half the time I had to convince myself I was even good enough for, because I just felt like I was everybody's kid's sister in summers 99, 2000, 2001, and 2002. Because I just, you know, I kind of got the job because somebody knew somebody, and then they were like, oh, Carly's funny enough, we can keep hiring her, and let's pay her a little more every summer. Thank God. Um, so, anyways, one of the things that I can appreciate most about being paid $1,000 and then a little bit more incrementally is that you learn who your family is as an artist and you also learn how to deal. So I just want to let you know how I ended up folded in half with my ass on the bottom of a trash can. So listen. Um, 2005, I was Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. I, I, just, I still to this day like love our tiny little Northeastern Montana production uh, of, of that show. Well, uh, community members were our scenery folks and they would move the scenery, you know, they scene changes, you know, all dressed in black. I can strike that, should I strike it, you, you know what I mean? So they, they, the blocking was for me to sit on a garbage can and imagine one of those Oscar the Grouch tin garbage cans, you know, with the lid. Well, somebody said it there. Little did I know that the lid was off center. And my blocking during suddenly Seymour is standing beside me. Like when it gets all like emotional, I was supposed to sit, like put my little butt on the trash can. And I am in front of at least 500 people, including people who thought I probably shouldn't have the role, and my parents and friends, and lots of people who'd seen me grow up there and were happy I was back. I sat on that trash can and disappeared with a mic on that I wasn't sharing with anybody. If anyone knows what it's like to share a mic when you're making like, you know, $200 a month, it's like, oh, you run off stage and you're like, oh, you have a seat, okay. You, 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 and thank God, someone knows what they're doing up there, hopefully, and they mute you. Otherwise, it'd be like, 
I don't know, I get peeing, you know, it would be like that. But anyways, so I'm on stage, I'm miked. I know that there's not much I can do to recover from this. And I just look up, and JP is still a good friend of mine, looks over, he's like, Audrey. And I was like, and somehow he gracefully gets me out of that trash can. If, if this were the case, I would have really hurt myself right now. I'm 40. I would have really hurt myself. Anyways, so he, he pulls me out, and all I can think to say is, damn trash can. <laughs> well, to this day, JP, who's recently been laid off uh, at Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas, likes to say, damn trash can, whenever he's sad. I think we can all agree that uh, the state of affairs currently in the country and across the universe sucks. I'm not going to go too far into that. Uh, but I am going to say that in 2008, I followed a boy here. He's now my husband. And since then, we have the most eclectic and amazing group of friends. I can't even tell you. They range in age from younger than me to older than me. I'm not going to put numbers on it. That's rude. Um, but. I have one of my closest friends who hails from New York originally. Um, a piece of advice that she gives to me when I am in the midst of like psychosis and anxiety and crying about life in general. Baby, this is all gonna be in your rear view mirror before you know it. And to have a talent like that that can calm someone down who's actually feeling crappy, like, and so, no, it'll be okay, you're fine, I, I hate those, but like, you know, it'll all be in your rear view mirror before you know it. She knows who she is, she's sitting here tonight. Um, but uh, this never rang more true for uh, me. Back in late 2015, I had two job offers for more money than I've ever made. And I found out I got pregnant on an IUD. And oddly enough, that is not the story I'm about to tell you. Um, I didn't know which job to take. I eventually took the job that I really didn't want. I didn't follow my gut because I was like, no, no, no. This is a great opportunity because when you're a performer, you know you do what you can to get by, and what I did to get by was office administration, office management, and eventually IT project management. So I took a job. I was so stressed the whole time. Do I tell them I'm pregnant? I don't know. There are laws in place. I know I don't have to. I've had two miscarriages. What if I lose this baby? Well, what if they find out after the fact and I think I lied? Oh, my God. Anyways, that's such a load of crap that women have to worry about. Shiz stuff on top of everything else. Well, 12 weeks after a lovely maternity leave with my second child, Sonia Grace, I came back to a workplace where my mentor, who had recruited me so hard, was gone. He met a lovely person on a video game, divorced his wife, and moved to Kansas. Um, and the new interim director uh, laid me off, basically. I saw the writing on the wall, but I've never been more devastated, embarrassed, felt like a failure. Um, I'd never been unemployed in my life. Uh, and all of a sudden, I wasn't making any money. <laughs> Thank God for unemployment. But I had two little kids, a lovely husband, and it, it, it was rough. I let myself freak out and 
be devastated for 48 hours. And then I went, you know what? Why don't I use this as an opportunity? And I know it sounds so canned, but it, that's hard to do. And so I just started networking and um, I went out to lunch with a lovely person named Buffy Maine who's directed me in two Alley Rep shows. Um, she told me to look into the Idaho Nonprofit Center. I did. There were so many jobs that inspired me. And then I reached out to my good friend who is, happens to be director of marketing at a very successful theater here in the Valley. Well, she said, oh, there's a, there's, there's a job, but I'm pretty sure it's been filled. But you know what? I know somebody who'd take you out to lunch and teach you about the nonprofit industry in this town. He knows everybody. And she was speaking of the managing director of said theater. So I get the call when I'm like on a ski trip with my parents and like my husband Troy's back in Boise working. I've got both kids. I leave that ski trip early so that I can have a coffee with this person. We show up at the Flying M. Every seat is packed. He's like, well, are, are you Carly? Are you Mark? Yeah, hi. Well, uh, uh, there's no place to sit. I was like, can we just grab a coffee and walk? Because I was so nervous. And when I'm nervous, if I just move, I'm so, I'm fine. So we walked around downtown Boise for 90 minutes and just talked. And at the end of it, we were sitting probably a little too close, but that's just him. He, he has a space. He's a great guy. Um, and he was like, so, uh, he might as well have gotten down on one knee. He's like, so, uh, you want a job? And I was like, yes. And uh, this season, I'm thankfully still employed, but this season I'll be going into my fifth season as uh, a development assistant and gala coordinator for the Idaho Shakespeare Festival and all I can say all I can say is uh, even though everything sucks right now uh, no matter how much you think it sucks it will be in our rearview mirror before we know it <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, Noah Saipo! <laughs> the great thing about B-movies is they are the venue for stories that shouldn't be told. So let's go there. I was married when I was 21, and it seemed like all my wife at the time and I needed to do was wash our underwear together and she'd get pregnant. By 23, I had a daughter and a son and a strong desire to not have any more. And this wasn't one-sided. My daughter was born weighing nine pounds, eight ounces, and my son came into the world at a whopping 11.3. Believe me when I tell you, wasn't nobody trying to test the waters for 13 pounds. Now, I've always known it takes two to tango. And my younger self deduced that in order to keep my dance card full without some derelict fallout was to get a vasectomy. You know, snipped, neutered, shooting blanks. But I have to tell you, as a Gen Xer in 2001, we didn't have the non-invasive laser procedures that exist today. Oh no, I was in for the old cut, tie, turn and burn. It went down like this. One, I called my insurance who told me they were more than happy to cover the entire cost of the procedure. Two, I scheduled a consultation with an in-network doctor. And there, sitting in his office, trying not to focus on his one lazy eye, he grilled me with questions of like, how old are you? Do you have children? One of each gender. I finally convinced him to schedule me for the procedure. I was scheduled for his office. I drove myself to surgery. 
I was met there that day with a middle-aged Southern Belle who escorted me to a changing room and told me to take off everything but your smile. And then I duck walked down the hall with one hand on my ass and the other holding down what can only be described as a custom cut access flap. We get to the OR room and we're met with three nurses, their smiles, and my sneaky suspicion this might be overkill. Now I'm laying on the OR table in my crotchless smock and I am witness to their cat-like dexterity during a synchronized segregation of duties. Nurse one exposes my vulnerability and preps the battlefield with a towel. Nurse two grabs a hold of me, a little too tight in my opinion, until I realize she is showering me with ice cold water from something that looks like a rabbit feeder. And if she didn't have my little soldier held in such an imperial grip, I bet he'd be missing an action to this day. <laughs> Nurse three, the most skilled of the coven, builds an igloo of Barbasol before dragging a razor across the most difficult terrain since Patton crossed Europe, removing any and all signs of my postpubescence. And then in walks Dr. Lazy Eye asking me if I'm okay. And I can only assume that he interpreted my still shocked silence as agreement because he pulls out this six gauge needle. I mean, this thing is the size of the straw that comes with your boba tea. And he jams it in my nutsack. And then he's down to work like a Cambodian street vendor serving soup in a bag. And those of you that have been to Southeast Asia know that's messy work. There's a twist, pull, cut, snip and then an arc from something that looks like a TIG welder that he's selected to cauterize his series of sailor knots. And as he's looking down with one eye on me and one eye looking to another dimension, he asks if everything's okay. And I said, well, Doc, there's nothing quite like the aroma of your own roast nuts. He starts to laugh. I start to laugh. The coven holding court in the corner starts to laugh. And he tells me, I've never heard that before. I'll do the other side for free. And I tell you, it's like I took the kids to the drive-in and we saw trolls, but somebody else bought the ticket. So you stay for the second feature and it turns out to be Saw 3. Thank you. Thank you for your service. We like to say it. I like to hear it. I just don't always know how to respond. In 2010, I was a young staff officer on a battalion staff, expecting to go to Victory Base Complex in Baghdad, Iraq, and do badging and access control, a very supporting role in the world of administration. And about halfway through our month-long post-MOBE train-up in Camp Shelby, Mississippi, I got word that the brigade commander wanted to talk to me. I was a little nervous. I showed up, squared away as I could be, and found out that a company commander had just been relieved, and I was the guy pinned with the rose. So within two weeks, I got to know my company and took 131 infantrymen to Balad, Iraq. And I promise you, we were everything you hoped that we would be. 
We got there in the fall of 2010, you know, when the palm trees are turning those beautiful shades of purple and yellow and the aroma of jet fuel and hot garbage permeate through the air. A couple months into our deployment, President Obama declared combat operations in Iraq over. The problem was nobody informed the insurgency. And a guy named Muqtadr al-Sadr came back from a self-imposed exile to Iran into the country of Iraq, identifying this power vacuum and wanting to fill it. Word was out. America was leaving, and he wanted to be the one to kick our asses. The screen door closed. And he did a damn good job. He brought with him these Iranian-milled concave copper disks that fit ever so nicely on the end of a roadside bomb. We call them forcibly enhanced, forcibly projected projectiles, EFPs. <laughs> and I had a run-in with one of those for those military historians in the crowd. This was January 8, 2011, outside Najaf. I earned the combat action badge. And about that time, I started to notice the morale of my company significantly decreasing. And I thought, it must be this misunderstood tribalism of the Sunni and the Shia, and I needed to really study and help them understand who al-Sadr was and what the Shia Iranian influence in the country was doing. And I'd spent hours off mission poring over this and reading every intel report, holding briefings to no avail. One night in the command post, my first sergeant comes in and says, sir, the guys are down at the, the movement control shack and are refusing to go on mission. And that was unheard of. So I jumped in the rig and we drove down to find out what was wrong. We had recently been tasked with providing security to super convoys. Imagine 80 tractor trailers in a row stretching 10 miles down MSR Tampa from Balad to Baghdad to Kalsu to Kuwait. It was very difficult to secure. And I had read these convoy manifests over and over and over again and had started to understand the acronyms, green truck, provided by the Army, KBR, U.S. contractor, TCN, third country national, non-U.S. contractor, and then line after line after line on this manifest were the letters SST. And I looked at that, and I looked at the sergeant, and I said, I don't get it. What's an SST? He goes, that's a shit sucker truck, sir. And my mind went to every hot box I had pinched a loaf in in full battle rattle across the country of Iraq and realized that too needed to leave. My Bronze Star citation in part says I participated in the largest drawdown of U.S. troops since we left Europe during World War II. And I told those guys, I know that you all believe in a free and independent Iraq, and we're getting out, and that means everything is getting out. When we say thank you for your service, when you say thank you for your service, I know that it is the war epic, epitome, idea that you have of a U.S. soldier protecting our interests and keeping us free. But I think, hey, all I did was move shit from one place to the next. <laughs> thank you. Back home, uh, please welcome our only out-of-town contestant, Lucas Littlefield. Well, guys, thanks for showing up tonight. It's uh, quite an interesting experience living in the COVID times, and I'm glad you're all here. You know, when I think about B-movies, um, I uh, saw a lot of them as a kid, like a lot of them. And 
I'm sure most of you here recall going shopping at the VHS stores, you know, going to get a movie, throw it in the VCR. And sometimes you'd shop for those movies just on the cover. You know, you oh, this looks good. Read the back, oh yeah, yeah, totally. And you throw it in and sometimes <laughs> not at all what you expected. That's well, kind of like my life. I, uh, I found out when I was nine, or when I was 13 that my dad died when I was nine. It's kind of weird because he was there the whole time when I was growing up. Let me, let me get you guys caught up. So when my mom was 29, she moved here from California. She met this really hot biker and they hooked up. She got pregnant and wanted to keep it, me. And uh, he didn't really, he wasn't into it. He just wasn't his thing. Um, so they kind of agreed to stay on their own paths. And um, she remarried, had two more kids. And you know, we, we grew up together out Indian Creek Canyon outside of Haley. Um, biker dad got kicked out of the state and ended up living his life elsewhere. So divorce dad, as I call him, my brother and sister's dad, uh, calls one day and wants to come visit us kids. My mom remarried at the time to a wonderful guy named Jimmy. After she gets, she gets off the phone with him and she's really, really f upset, you know, she's not doing okay. And she says, Lucas, we've got to talk. Let's go to your room. What did I do? Like, I, you know, I just answered the phone, gave it to mom. So we go down to my room and she tells me basically what you all know now about my blood father. The fact that, um, I, well, I found out that, you know, I had one and it wasn't divorce dad. And which makes sense because my brother and sister are both dark skin, dark hair, tall, you know, and I'm like blonde, blue eyes. I look a lot like mom. That's what everybody would always say. And so um, I find out that this is the situation and, you know, I'm kind of confused, but I'm also trying to like make a relationship with my now father. And so I just don't know what to do. So I just kind of, you know, I'm like, ah, and I can tell she's upset when she tells me. So I say, well, I guess it makes sense why my brother and sister and I fight all the time. You're not even related, right? So fast forward a bit. Um, I'm in Portland. Actually, Eugene uh, was with a friend working on some statistics homework because, you know, how fun that is. And I decide I'm going to, I don't know, like make another look for my dad move. And I uh, get on Facebook and there's this page, you know, your old school catch him if. So I post up and I'm thinking, well, I mean, Dad lived there, he had two brothers, they'd lived in town, maybe somebody knew him, right? So I post up there, yeah, my dad, any twin brother, other brother, around this time, like anybody knew him, like it'd be cool to, you know, let me know. So within an hour, I get a message from a lady who's married to apparently my cousin's best friend, like new cousin don't know about, and he, they're in Arizona. So we're messaging now and I find out within the next hour that I've got another cousin in Vancouver, just like across the river from Portland. That's crazy. Well, within the next couple hours, I find out I have another cousin in Eugene, which is where I am at the time. And you know, like, this is just crazy. And, and then I find out that that cousin actually has a living parent, my Aunt Pam, who's with us here tonight. And it was one of those things like, whoa, I have a whole new family that I've never met. This is crazy. So we make plans um, to meet, and it just so happens that Pam's partner had passed away, and the services were upcoming, and that was my first opportunity to meet my, my new family. So I fly into town, 
get dropped off at the services. I'm walking up. He was in the military, so it's the whole military services. And I'm going up and looking around for, I don't know, you know, you go to a party by yourself and it's kind of weird. You're looking around for people. Like, go to a funeral by yourself. It's like extra weird. You're looking around for people like, hey, how's it going, everybody? And I ended up seeing my cousin. They saw me and it was one of those like we knew each other right away. And same thing with my Aunt Pam. Like we looked at each other. It was just like, I know you. This is so cool. So like a B movie, when you're shopping at the uh, store for your recording movies, you grab one, you're not sure what it is. Sometimes it ends up exactly what you wanted. Thanks, guys. So if you would take a minute, you don't have to close your eyes, but you can. And think about what you wanted to be when you grow up. Like when you were a little one, what did you want to be when you grew up? This story is about not necessarily knowing what you want to be when you grow up, and sometimes you just find yourself there. So my grandpa Henry, he was a great storyteller. And one of my favorite things to do is just to realize he started one and like, well, sit in, here we go, because he's not stopping. And one of his favorite stories to tell was how he got in the pictures. Well, Henry and his brother were, you know, running around town playing. They lived in California. And uh, his older brother, you know, go home, Henry. I don't, I don't want you to be here. Like, you know, we're going to, big boys are playing. Little Henry is a determined young man, and, you know, he didn't take no for an answer. And his brother goes running across the crosswalk, and little Henry goes running after him, and bam, gets hit by a car. So I'll, I'll pause for a moment here. I'm guessing that everybody here is familiar with the Little Rascals, yeah? You may or may not know the precursor to the Little Rascals was called Our Gang. It was like the, the show before the show. Well, the car that hit Grandpa Henry was the producer of Our Gang, Hal Roach, his driver. So, you know, they got Henry to the hospital and taken care of and great grandpa's there and you know getting everything settled and and Hal says well you know we want to you know we want to do right by you so tell you what I'm going to give you a job and we're going to put your boy in the pictures and so my grandpa Henry became little Henry as an aside when he was on set one day, um, I believe they were at a hotel or something, he was playing around in the pool, or near the pool, and he was reaching out for the toy, he wanted to get that floaty toy, wanted to get it, wanted... and splash, little Henry goes into the pool, and he can't swim. So he's splashing around and thrashing around and trying to grab a floaty to, you know, not drown, and just so happens Tarzan, the original Tarzan, is up on the balcony, and he sees little Henry down there, and jumps down into the pool and saves my grandpa. So Grandpa Henry is no longer with us. He lived to be a ripe old 99. And my grandma, Helen, is still with us and she is a fiery redheaded 98. And when Grandpa Henry passed, I was blessed enough to have the last conscious conversation with the man. 
It was brief. And he told me, Lucas, I want you to know I love you very much. Then he closed his eyes. And a few days later, he passed away, comfortably in hospice, in his sleep. Just prior to that, I had lost my dog of 10 years. And it sent me down into a dark, dark place. I'm just now kind of getting back to it, if you will. And the way that that loss set me up for being present for Grandpa Henry's loss, it opened a door to me that I never would have opened on my own, I don't think. It brought me to a path. I'm in school right now on this path to become a counselor and specifically to become an end-of-life counselor, to talk with people about that situation, what it's like to be dying, what it's like to be with somebody who's dying, and what you do when that person dies. And as strange as it may sound, I am super excited to have conversations with people about what it's like to die. And I owe all this to my grandpa, little Henry. Thank you. The slammer of the year is Lucas Littlefield. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.